This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss When Diplomacy Fails presents The July Crisis Anniversary Project A day-by-day account of the events that occurred 100 years ago No one can stop. Today is the 1st of August 2014, and on this day in history a hundred years ago, occurred the following events. The French Chief of Staff, General Joffrey, was in a heap of nerves, handing the French War Minister a note detailing the imperative necessity of ordering our mobilisation. Joffrey cited examples of German mobilisation, even though at this stage Germany was still in its pre-mobilisation stage concerned that any further delaying tactic would give Maltke, the German chief of staff, a dangerous head start, Joffrey insisted that the last possible time limit for publishing the order would expire at 4pm. Joffrey further insisted that if the order to mobilise was not forthcoming, then he would resign. I cannot possibly continue to bear the crushing responsibility of the high office which has been entrusted to me. The war minister, Adolf Messimi, persuaded Joffrey to make his case to the assembled French government within the hour, and Joffrey agreed. At 9am the French cabinet convened for the day. Despite Joffrey's sense of urgency, the cabinet reminded him that Germany's ultimatum to Russia to stop its mobilisation would not expire till noon, and that they thus had a couple of hours before the gap between the two states became notable. Meanwhile, important news had come in from Italy that promised to have a dramatic effect on the shape of the upcoming war. Italy had remained in a difficult position during the July crisis. Sandwiched as it was between the obligations of the Triple Alliance and the friendships and secret agreements it had signed with Britain and France, Austro-German planners and military staffs had come to regard Italy as something of a non-entity in any upcoming conflict, on the basis that, despite the Italian membership in the alliance, Italy's territorial ambitions for Austria's Tyrol region were simply too strong to enable the two to fight on the same side. 
This expectation became dangerous in the middle of July, when it was debated in Vienna whether Italy would simply take the opportunity granted by Vienna's distraction with Serbia to seize the disputed region in a surprise war. Italy had launched a surprise war already in 1911, which had produced dramatic consequences for the European balance of power. Its war with the Ottomans for Libya had cast a shadow of vulnerability over the latter's Balkan domains, which facilitated a rapid scramble between these Balkan states to fill the resulting power vacuum with their own land grabs. This has then contributed towards Serbia's ballooning in size and Vienna's alarm bells to ring even louder than before. It also reinvigorated Serbia's irredentist organisations, like the Black Hand for example, who played a central part in assassinating Franz Ferdinand and his wife on the 28th of June. Italy was soon to become caught in the complicated technicalities of the July crisis, and because of the recent declaration of war by Austria against Serbia, the Italian foreign minister could claim that the defensive nature of the Triple Alliance from Italy's point of view had been violated, and thus the obligations for Rome no longer held water. The French ambassador to Rome had reported back that the foreign minister had told him, in the utmost secrecy, that the Italian government was inclined to regard the Austrian attack on Serbia as an act of aggression of a nature to absolve it from action in favour of Austria. Rome's foreign minister continued that the articles of the Triple Alliance were such as to enable Italy to abstain from participation in any conflict. In other words, on behalf of Germany. In so stating, Italy had effectively absolved itself from the Triple Alliance, and just as Austro-German statesmen had always suspected, they would now have to fight without Rome's help. Although the Italian foreign minister did urge the French and Russians to show restraint, Joffrey immediately reacted to the news by sending the army, additional instructions prescribing that, in case of mobilisation, the covering troops designated for the southeastern frontier should remain in their mobilisation centres, ready to entrain for the northeast. Though the news had just come in, Joffrey seemed confident that Italy meant what it said. French troops originally meant for Italy could now be sent against the Germans. Meanwhile in London, Britain's cabinet was also meeting. Much to the chagrin of the high-born Britons who attended the meeting, there would be no break for the weekend. Downing Street had received a note from France at the previous midnight, in which René Viviani, the French Prime Minister, had reported falsely that... German patrols have twice penetrated our territory, and that our advanced units have retreated 10 kilometers behind the border. This meant, as Viviani explained, that the populations are thus left exposed to enemy attack, but the government is determined to show English public opinion and government that the aggressor will in no case be France. So alarming was this message that Sir Arthur Nicholson, the British Under Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, was awoken to be briefed on it. Nicholson then woke up the Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, but not yet the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey. Minutes later, a little bit after midnight, came in the German Chancellor, Bethmann Hallwig's communique, reporting that Russian mobilisations had begun on that day, Friday the 31st of July, and that We were compelled, unless we wanted to abandon the safety of the fatherland, to answer this action, which could only be regarded as hostile, with serious countermeasures. We therefore told Russia that if she did not stop her warlike measures against Germany and Austria-Hungary within 12 hours, we should mobilise, and that would mean war. We asked France whether in a Russo-German war she would remain neutral.
whether or not London could verify Viviani's claim that German units had penetrated the French border, still here was presented to British statesmen the sobering news that war would begin on Saturday the 1st of August at noon between Russia and Germany. Responding to this news, without the government going into meltdown in light of its divisions between interventionist and non-interventionist, was going to be a challenge of the highest order for the conflicted British government. The first order of business was to draft a letter to Russia. British statesmen, though they had taken their sweet time to acknowledge it, could now no longer remain in the dark about Russian military measures. If Russia was indeed mobilising as the German Chancellor had insisted it was, then St. Petersburg must be pulled back now before the war began. For such an appeal to have the greatest effect, Nicholson and Asquith understood that they would have to adopt a line of communication familiar to Germany, and write a telegram directly to the Russian Tsar, who Britain's monarch was also a relative of. In order to do this though, they had to first wake King George V up from his sleep, the time on the clock said 1.30am, and it would be most undignified to wake up their sovereign in the midst of his sleep, but needs required it, so the procession of statesmen arrived at Buckingham Palace in the middle of the night to gain the King's approval. Asquith describes the scene. The poor king was hauled from his bed and one of my strangest experiences was sitting with him, he in his brown dressing gown over his nightshirt, and with copious signs of having been awakened from his beauty sleep, while I read the message and the proposed answer. All he did was suggest it should be made more personal and direct, by the insertion of the words, My dear Nicky, and the addition at the end of the signature, Georgie. The actual words of what George said to Nicholas contained the report Bethman had sent to London, as well as the vague request that the Tsar should endeavour to remove the misapprehension which I feel must have occurred. At 2am, Asquith's secretary rang Lichnowsky, the German ambassador to Britain, and told him that Russia had been asked to stop the mobilisation. This in fact was what should have been said, but the earlier George to Nicky telegram had danced around the issue despite the importance. The next morning on the 1st of August at 7am, Nicholson wired another telegram to France, also signed by the King, this with the additional vague assurance to Paris that You may rest assured that my government will continue to discuss frankly and freely with Cambon all points touching the interests of both peoples. Such a notice was tantamount to a declaration that the two states will continue conversing, but no British statement on where it would stand or who it would support was yet forthcoming. This was despite Paul Cambon, the French ambassador to Britain's, intense efforts. In fact, when Sir Edward Grey did eventually wake on the morning of the 1st of August, he sent his secretary to visit Lichnowsky, and engaged in the first of many contradictory proposals that were soon to sow seeds of first confusion, then intense elation, and then depressed resignation in Berlin. Lichnowsky reported to Berlin at 11.14am that Grey's idea for limiting the war was that in the event of our not attacking France, England too would remain neutral and guarantee France's passivity. Gray's secretary insisted that more details would come after the expected cabinet meeting scheduled that morning. What was Sir Edward Grey up to? Did he really think he could persuade France to abandon Russia after decades of collaboration between the two sides? While Lignovsky was surely pondering this question, Grey phoned him personally and asked the German ambassador, whether I thought I could give an assurance that, in the event of France remaining neutral in a war between Russia and Germany, we should not attack the French. 
Getting this assurance would be no problem, as Lichnowsky well knew, since the last thing Germany had wanted in the first place was a two-front war, if not absolutely necessary. So he assured Grey that he could take responsibility for such a guarantee, and that Grey could use this guarantee in the upcoming cabinet meeting. Grey's secretary thereafter begged Lichnowsky to use his influence to prevent German troops from violating the French frontier. Everything depended on that. The British meeting itself saw the familiar story of trying to balance interventionists with non-interventionists, and Grey began to issue his own threats. The Foreign Secretary warned that he would resign his post if an out-and-out and and uncompromising policy of non-intervention at all costs is adopted. Because the resignations of Churchill and Asquith would surely follow Grey's stance, then it suggested the collapse of the government if some intervention was not approved of. Not even the most ardent interventionists wanted to see this outcome, and the focus then began to shift towards the moral question of Belgium. Though a hardcore group of MPs remained utterly opposed to intervention because of Belgium, the situation was not black and white even in the non-interventionists' minds. Grey seized his opportunity. He asked to address a warning to Lichnowsky that if Germany was unable to give the same resolute guarantee as France had given for Belgian neutrality then, it would be very hard to restrain public opinion in this country. The threat of using the wrath of public feeling against Germany was unusual, but it gave Grey his best chance to pressure the Germans, who he had just issued a contradictory statement to about Britain's efforts to restrain France if Germany didn't attack her. To add to the confusion, when Grey met with the French ambassador Paul Cambon after the meeting with Cabinet, he had to tell the Frenchman that Cabinet remained opposed to intervention. Cambon, distraught as the clock appeared to be ticking, claimed he wouldn't report this back home, and that out of protest he would state to Paris that Britain hadn't yet arrived at a decision. Grey then emphasised to him that a decision had been made, and that because British interests were just to be not deeply rooted in the ongoing affair, that Britain could not justify intervening. In desperation did Cambon shift the argument and remind Grey of the same issues that Ayer Crow had raised the previous day. That France had removed its naval protection from its northern coasts under the terms of the 1912 naval convention between the two powers, and France had thus entrusted their security to the British Navy. Cambon pleaded that, even without the formal obligations of an alliance binding the two, does Britain not have a moral obligation to help us, or at least to give us the help of your fleet? since it is on your advice that we sent ours away? This seems to have struck a chord with Grey, and it is odd that the Foreign Secretary would have to be reminded of this angle yet again, since it was perhaps the major trump card that the interventionists had. Grey acknowledged that a German attack on the French coastline might alter British public opinion, and he promised to raise the issue of it in the Cabinet meeting the next day. Relieved at this at least, but no doubt traumatised at the apparent fraying of the Entente and the imperiled state of French diplomacy, Cambon left the meeting white as a sheet and close to tears. He staggered into the room next to Grey's office, where his friend Sir Arthur Nicholson was sitting, sifting through papers, and had to be guided by him to a chair, as he muttered, They're going to drop us! They're going to drop us! Back in Paris, the German ambassador had just visited Viviani, to inquire immediately about French intentions in the event of a Russo-German war. Viviani gave the rehearsed a reply that France will act in accordance with her interests. Ambassador Schoen cannot have had much doubts about what this meant, 
but in his efforts to ply a definite answer out of the French Prime Minister, he asked, I confess that my question is rather naive. After all, do you not have a treaty of alliance with Russia? Incredibly, not willing to give a clear answer for anything, Viviani replied mysteriously, So it would appear. Schoen continued to press the Prime Minister, but Viviani replied that, He regards the situation as changed since yesterday. When Schoen asked what had changed, Viviani noted on the recent developments, as well as adding some embellishments of his own. Sir Edward Grey's proposal that all sides cease military preparations has been accepted by Russia in principle, and Austria-Hungary has announced that she will not infringe Serbian integrity and sovereignty. Though it was true that Austria had given these guarantees to Russia, coming as they did the night before at the very last minute, Russia had not given any guarantees of the sort that Viviani told Schoen about here. Unsure of himself, though, Schoen was not aware that Viviani had simply lied. He thought instead that the situation might be open to a solution. Baron Schoen replied to Viviani, as the latter recorded, that He did not know the developments that had taken place in this matter in the last 24 hours, and that there was in them perhaps a glimmer of hope for some arrangement, and that he was going to get information. As before, Viviani had bought himself some time. Schoen, originally seeking a definite French response, was led away with more questions than answers for his home government. Though Viviani had begun the July crisis as an ardent pacifist, he appears by this stage to have fallen in with the war party. However, judging by his continuing resistance to mobilise the country, it seems likely that he was merely passively resigned to the fact that his country would soon be at war, rather than undergoing a grand transformation into a belligerent Frenchman that perhaps the French president wanted to see. In any event, such developments soon became irrelevant, since whatever effect the audience would show and had on him, it seems to have persuaded Viviani that the time to mobilise was now. France could hold back no longer. Chief of Staff Joffrey noted that when Viviani returned from his meeting with the German ambassador, He was now fully convinced that I was right, and in the face of the dangerous preparations already made by the Germans, he was ready to sign the order for general mobilisation. With Viviani convinced, the last obstacle to the French mobilisation was out of the way. The French march to war alongside Russia could begin. In Berlin, Bethmann was clinging to the hope that the situation would improve, and yet the news he had received from his ambassador in Russia was not encouraging. Heinrich Portelet in St. Petersburg had delivered the message to Sergei Sazanov, the Russian foreign minister, at 11.10pm the night before on the 31st informing Sazanov that if Russia did not cease its mobilization procedures within 12 hours, then Germany would be forced to declare war. Sazanov, in response to Portelay, said that it was impossible on technical grounds to stop war preparations, and that the meaning of Russian mobilization could not be compared to Germany's. In other words, Sazanov was sticking to his guns by claiming that Russian mobilization did not mean war. Bethmann remained unimpressed with this argument of Sazanov's. He made an address to the Bundesrat, Germany's upper house, the approval of which was required for a declaration of war. Within his address, the Chancellor noted that Russia tries to make out that her mobilisation is not to be regarded as an act of hostility against us, while adding that France had prepared its own mobilisation plans and would soon announce them if it hadn't already. In fact, French mobilisation would be announced at 3.30pm that day. If Germany decided that it was going to believe Sazanov and not react to the Russian measures, Bethmann warned the deputies that she would 
lose advantage of our greater speed of mobilization, putting us then in danger of having, in the immediate future, fully mobilized battle-ready armies on our eastern and western frontiers. Equipped to seize, entire provinces of East Prussia, and even while in the west, the Rhineland was endangered. This was the reason Bethmann gave for the issuing of the 12-hour ultimatum to Russia, as well as a note to Paris demanding to know of French intentions. If the reply was not satisfactory, Bethmann claimed, and there was no declaration of neutrality from France, then, Bethmann explained, the Kaiser will have the Russian government informed that he must regard himself as in a state of war with Russia. Brought- a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Done by Russia herself, and to France, he will have the statement made that we are at war with Russia, and that, as France does not guarantee her neutrality, we must assume that we are also in a state of war with France. We have not willed this war; it has been forced upon us. Bethmann, to his relief, then bore witness to the unanimous vote in the Bundesrat in favor of this course of action. If the dice must roll, the Chancellor concluded. Then, may God help us. Bethman was able to note, after the address, that, as the clock ticked down to and past noon, that the time had expired for a Russian reply to his ultimatum. Germany's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs thus drew up the declaration of war, where it to Port Alais at 12.52pm on the 1st of August 1914. Demonstrating his hesitancy until the last moment, Bordelais was instructed by Bethman not to hand over the declaration until 5pm. After that time, and only after that time, Bethman said, could general mobilisation begin? The confusing and altogether paradoxical thing about Maltka's plans for war 
were that they revolved around the Schlieffen Plan no matter what happened. In other words, even though the Schlieffen Plan required defence against Russia and offence against France in the opening stages, war would be declared against Russia first now, because in this case, Russia had provided the cause for war. No plans were underway to do anything other than defend against Russia while France was attacked, and the optimist might have judged that if Germany merely attacked Russia and defended against France, then it would be harder for Britain to justify intervention, since, as it would have stood, if Germany engaged in a passive defence of its border with France, French security would hardly be under as much peril as they would have been if Germany invaded it. But the German High Command had been trained to operate with the same military plan for years. To suggest that an alternative plan be used would have caused Malka great distress, as Wilhelm's later suggestions did. Bethmann would have known, though, that declaring war first was diplomatic suicide. Italy and Romania, tied to Germany with defensive alliances, would have been treaty-bound to assist her had Germany awaited the Russian declaration instead. Not only that, but as the state that fired the first shot, Sazanov's claim that Russia was defending its interests would have seemed less legitimate, especially in Britain. Yet even though Bethmann knew that the declarations would paint Germany in a negative light, his reasoning painted the logic that because Germany had to respond to Russia's act of war, war had to be declared. Bethmann was resigned to this logic, and it doesn't seem to have occurred to him that on the other hand, Russian moves beforehand would all be forgotten once Germany fired the first shot. German policy was about to walk into the arms of Sazanov's planning, just like Austrian policy had done before. When reports began to flood in about intelligence of Russian troop movements to the extent that German reconnaissance was able to identify specific Russian units, Falkenhayn, the Minister of War, insisted on action. Unable to understand why, it almost being four hours since the ultimatum had expired, Germany hadn't yet mobilised, the War Minister sought out Bethmann. Falkenhayn recalled that, After considerable resistance, he consented and we rang up Maltka and Tirpitz. Wilhelm then summoned everyone to his palace, and at 5pm on Saturday the 1st of August, Germany's sovereign signed the order for mobilisation. His country, incredibly considering the picture most have of events, was the last of the four powers involved to do so. But the drama wasn't over yet. Yagov, the Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, had raced over to the Wilhelmstrasse to inform everyone in the room that a very important dispatch has just come in from England and would soon be decoded and brought along. In his hands, Yagov held the earlier dispatch from Lichnowsky in London, in which the German ambassador had telegraphed at 11.14 today the news of his meeting with Gray, the meeting in which Gray had made the incredible assertion that, in the event of not attacking France, England would remain neutral and guarantee France's passivity. The news, as the chief of the military cabinet recalled, hit everyone like a bomb, since it suddenly appeared that Germany would have to fight one opponent instead of three. Malka claims that when he was recalled, he left as soon as mobilisation was signed, so that he along with Falkenhayn could pass the order on, only to be recalled ten minutes later, that he found everyone in a joyful state of mind. Wilhelm, overcome with joy, exclaimed, Now we can go to war against Russia only. We simply march our whole army to the east. Maltke couldn't believe what he was hearing. There was no plan in place for this. Germany's war plans had in some sense relied on the next war with Russia always involving France, 
there was no provision within it that allowed Germany to turn its forces backwards and send them all against Russia in a crushing offensive alongside Austria that the Kaiser now envisioned. Eventually, the Chief of Staff composed himself. Your Majesty, he began, the deployment of an army of a million men cannot be improvised. If your majesty insists on leading the whole army to the east, it will not be an army ready for battle, but a disorganised mob of men with no arrangements for supply. Besides, as Malka emphasised, Britain would not be able to stop the impending offensives that a fully mobilised France expected to launch, despite what Great assured. Wilhelm, unwilling to see his parade rained on, gave the infamous reply that, Your uncle would have given me a different answer. Malka's uncle being the author of the French defeat in 1870. With this comment, that Malka later claimed, wounded me deeply, Wilhelm gave the order for the advance into Luxembourg, the first leg of the Schlieffen plan, to halt. Malka refused to sign the order that was now put in front of him, but Wilhelm overrode him and issued it nonetheless at 6.40pm. To assure Malka, Falkenhayn pulled him aside and recommended that the Kaiser be humoured, so long as Britain's offer was on the table. Turpitz pointed out to everyone that, as if reading Moltke's mind, whether it was, a bluff or not a bluff, Germany's refusal will be published in London, putting us flagrantly in the wrong. Wilhelm agreed. Whether or not Grey was sincere in his offers, it was essential that Germany show good faith, even at this critical stage. Bethman and Yagov began scrambling then to make a favourable reply to Grey's offer virtually falling over themselves in the hope of limiting the war to Russia and retaining the British neutrality. The first letter was undirected to Wilhelm's counterpart in Buckingham Palace. In his letter to George V, Wilhelm noted that he had just received the communication from your government offering French neutrality under guarantee of Great Britain. Added to this great offer was the inquiry whether under these conditions Germany would refrain from attacking France. Wilhelm explained that Germany's mobilisation against France and Russia could no longer, regrettably, on technical grounds be halted. However, Wilhelm promised that, If France offers me neutrality, which must be guaranteed by the British fleet and army, I shall of course refrain from attacking France and employ my troops elsewhere. Wilhelm claimed, apparently to demonstrate his seriousness, that, The troops on my frontier are in the act of being stopped by telegraph and telephone from crossing into France. In fact, German soldiers weren't scheduled to cross into France for a number of weeks, so stopping them now made little difference. Wilhelm could have mentioned the fact that he had personally halted the forces intended to invade Luxembourg, but then that would have raised questions in London, and exposed German strategy. Moltke still refused to sign the order, but Wilhelm had already found a way around him. Frustrated with his chief of staff, the Kaiser dismissed Moltke before 8pm. Falkenhayn claims that Moltke had burst into tears of abject despair, and that Malka had confided in the war minister how he was a totally broken man because this decision by the Kaiser demonstrated to him that Wilhelm still hoped for peace. In a huff did Malka leave the room, and claimed to his wife that evening that he was ready to fight the enemy, but not with a Kaiser like this one. Malka's wife would later claim that the stress of the meeting caused the chief of staff a mild stroke. However, the influx of incredible news from London had not yet finished. While German statesmen drafted their warm replies to accede to Britain's demands, another telegram came in from Lichnowsky, who had received Gray's secretary. 
The secretary had told him, after attending the cabinet meeting that afternoon, that Sir Edward Grey has made an offer this afternoon for the neutrality of England, even in the case that we make war with Russia as well as France. At news of this incredible boon for Germany, Wilhelm was said to have opened a bottle of champagne himself. Britain, it seemed, would stay neutral no matter what, and Germany could do whatever she wanted. Of course, Germany still had to contend with its flanks, but the Kaiser, no doubt riding a wave of euphoria, as Lichnowsky knew he would be, didn't seem to mind. Yagov sent a wire off to the German ambassador in Paris, passing on Gray's offer, and adding the promise that, From our side, no hostile action against France was in view, aside from mobilisation. And asked Ambassador Schoen to pass this on to Viviani to keep the French quiet for the time being. However, the Russian situation was more complex. Since Portelay had been meant to hand the declaration of war to Sazanov at 6.30pm Russian time, or 5pm in Berlin, this meant that Russia was in a technical state of war with Germany, while the excitement over Grey's offers lit Wilhelm's palace ablaze. The most recent information out of St. Petersburg, though, had been the latest Willy Nicky telegram, in which Tsar Nicholas II said that he understood why Germany felt obliged to mobilise, but added his wish to have the same guarantee from you as I gave you, that these measures do not mean war and we shall continue negotiating for the benefit of our countries and universal peace dear to our hearts. Our long-proved friendship must succeed with God's help in avoiding bloodshed. Anxiously, full of confidence, await your answer. Since this had been answered in the negative by a declaration of war, Bethman wanted to be sure Russia understood the situation. He sent a reply to Nicholas's letter in Wilhelm's name and with his blessing, in which the last of the Willy Nicky correspondence came to an end. Thanks for your telegram. I yesterday pointed out to your government the way by which alone war may be avoided. Although I requested an answer for noon today, no telegram from my ambassador conveying an answer from your government has reached me yet. I therefore have been obliged to mobilise my army. Immediate, affirmative, clear and unmistakable answer from your government is the only way to avoid endless misery. Until I have received this answer, alas, I am unable to discuss the subject of your telegram. As a matter of fact, I must request you to immediately order your troops on no account to commit the slightest act of trespassing over our frontiers. The subject that Wilhelm claimed to be unable to discuss was the Russian insistence that mobilisation did not mean war. Bethman was adamant that it did, because of what mobilisation meant for German war plans, and he was supported in this view by Germany's statesmen. However, Russia, not following the same Schlieffen plan or having to develop a strategy that hinged upon the mobilisation timetables of those involved, seemed content to present mobilisation as the latest in a series of escalations. This was despite the maddening facts that German statesmen now knew. Russian soldiers were effectively preparing to attack Germany. The telegram appears largely unnecessary though, since by the time this reply to Nicholas, sent at 9.45pm, reached St. Petersburg in the dead of night, Germany would surely have its answer from its ambassador by then. As a matter of fact, at 5.30pm German time, the same time roughly that Malka and Falkenhayn were being called back to hear about Britain's stunning offer, Portelay was visiting Sazanov for the last time, equipped with the declaration of war from Berlin. Heinrich Portelay began the conversation by asking if Sazanov was agreeable to giving him a favourable reply to his note as of yesterday the note being the 12-hour ultimatum for Russia to cease its mobilisation. 
Sazanov said he was unable to comply. Sighing for effect, and no doubt drawing it like a suggestive weapon, Portolay took the declaration of war out of his pocket. Sazanov saw it, and recognised it for what it was at once. Portolay asked again, emphasising this time the serious consequences, and perhaps pointing suggestively to the declaration he held in his hand. Again, Sazanov replied in the negative. Sazanov recorded that, with increasing emotion, Portolay asked the question a third time, to which the Russian foreign minister definitively announced, I have no other reply to give you. Portolay, deeply moved and drawing a deep breath, presented the declaration of war, with trembling hands, to Sazanov. The two men, overcome with emotion and no doubt exhaustion, embraced. It had been a long day, an even longer week, and an even longer still month for everyone that inhabited the Russian capital. Portolay recorded in his diary, although Sazanov doesn't mention it, that after the emotion passed, the two statesmen set about pointing fingers. Now that the war was out, there was no point in pretending anymore. Sazanov blamed Germany's ambassador to Austria, Count Chertsky, for egging Austria on, while Portolay replied that the men responsible were those that had encouraged the Tsar to mobilise against us. Sazanov parried this with his own question. What could I, as Minister for Foreign Affairs, have done when the War Minister explained to the Tsar that mobilisation was necessary? Portolay responded to this that it was Sazanov's job, knowing from our previous negotiations what would necessarily be the consequences of this mobilisation, and that he should have restrained the Tsar from this fateful step. Had Portolay known that it was Sazanov himself who had participated just as willingly in the process as the War Minister he blamed, Portolay would surely have been angrier still. After this exchange, Portolay packed his bags. He would leave at 8am the next morning. Sazanov immediately wired off the news of the German declaration of war to his ambassadors, and then went to dine with Paleolog and Buchanan, the British ambassador. These men were all unaware of the unfolding drama in Berlin, or how close Wilhelm believed he was to fighting the ideal war. It did not take long for Wilhelm's illusions to be shattered, though. Shortly after 10pm, he was awoken with the reply that had in fact been the work of Grey, but was signed off as going from King George, in reply to Wilhelm's earlier telegram that had so warmly welcomed the prospect of peace with Britain. Grey, called to Buckingham Palace to account for himself at around 9pm, had drafted the following reply to Wilhelm with King George V's approval. There must be some misunderstanding as to a suggestion that passed in friendly conversation between Prince Zygnowski and Sir Edward Grey this afternoon when they were discussing how actual fighting between French and German armies might be avoided while there is still a chance of some agreement between Austria and Russia. Sir Edward Grey will arrange to see Zygnowski early tomorrow to ascertain whether there is a misunderstanding on his part. Of course, there had been no misunderstanding. Gray had in fact authorised the sending of the contradictory message to Lichnowski, and had even sent some to the French ambassador in London, as well as sending another to Britain's ambassador to France. Gray, it seemed, was taken aback by the reaction that his proposals generated in Berlin. It is he who should be held responsible for keeping Wilhelm's hopes up. Certainly, as far as pledges go, his to guarantee the passivity of France, thereby preventing it from aiding its Russian ally the past two decades, was incredibly naive. And the fact that proof now exists of him sending these proposals demonstrates his own inability 
to comprehend the situation. There must be some misunderstanding, was in some ways the desperate plea of a panicked foreign minister, who, having received the overwhelmingly rapturous response from the Germans, realised just how badly he had misunderstood the situation himself. Whatever the angle of grey, the news hit Wilhelm like a bomb of depression. Having been awoken to read George's short reply to his warm earlier letter, Wilhelm now resigned himself to the fact that Britain would soon be his enemy. He swallowed his pride and summoned Maltke, who thought he was being awoken to be told of yet another mobilisation halting order, but in fact was greeted by the dishevelled German emperor, who had only thrown a coat over his pyjamas. Maltke was handed the telegram from Buckingham Palace, and as he looked over it, Wilhelm sadly noted, Now you can do what you want. Maltke didn't waste time. He raced home to telegraph the 16th Division, earlier stopped from entering Luxembourg on Wilhelm's orders, and told their commander to proceed as planned. Germany, just like France, Russia, and Austria, was now not going to stop. As the night of the 1st of August approached, and gave way to the next morning, the sounds of men marching to their assembly points across Europe created a symphony of defensive patriotism that whitewashed the original cause for the war. Serbia, once the fulcrum of reasoning for intervention, had been buried, alongside Austria's declaration of war, under the morass of diplomatic failures and falsifications, the cacophony of intrigue and secrecy, and the web of lies, aims, dreams and nightmares that had been spun since the day Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, 34 days before. All of this had led to the procession of mankind that was about to slaughter itself on an unimaginable scale, and yet no one, from the statesmen to the sovereigns, had ever seemed able, or at sometimes willing, to stop. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 